Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of interviewing uh, Professor David Sibula, who is at the University of Prague in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Uh, of course, obviously someone that needs no introduction, a leader in gynecologic oncology, previous president of the uh, European Society of Gynecologic Oncology, and certainly someone that has really made an impact in the field of gynecologic uh, cancer. So we're really, really very proud and happy to uh, discuss this topic, which is going to be the ESGO ESTRO ESP guidelines for the management of patients with cervical cancer. This is the update that is gonna be published in our journal in 2023. So uh, David, thank you so much uh, once again for, uh, for uh, accepting our invitation to par participate in this podcast. Well, Pedro and Arthur, uh, very much. I'm I, I'm very appreciated to do so, and I'm also very happy that this article has been selected as the leading article of the months of the International Journal. Of course, it is. Uh, it is really obviously a, a great uh, a manuscript uh, and uh, one that was uh, always awaited uh, after the presentation at the prior ESGO meeting. And um, we have a, a number of questions that I want to address with you, but certainly there's a lot of really valuable information in the guidelines and the manuscripts. So I really encourage everyone to go through all of the details of the, uh, of the manuscript um, to really see what has changed and what are some of the updates, as well as some of the new features of, of the guidelines as well. Um, I also you know, wanted to thank all of the members of this committee. I know that this is a, a, a large number of uh, individuals and leaders in the field. So David, I wanted to ask you, um, why did you all decide to come together for this most recent uh, 2023 uh, update of the guidelines? Well, I think that, that uh, for each international guidelines, what, what, what is difficult is first to find a consensus because hardly in any disease there is enough evidence to build the recommendations only based on evidence. So it's always a consensus of the international group and the broader the group in terms of countries and disciplines, the more, the, the more difficult it is. And second, what, is, what, what makes the guidelines attractive and interesting is the update. And uh, this is something what, what makes NCCN guidelines uh, very popular because it's simple, it made, it's made of algorithms, but, but it's also regularly updated. Mm -hmm. So I'm very pleased that ESGO initiated these updates of the main guidelines. So recently endometrial cancer guidelines, uh, now cervical cancer, and later also ovarian cancer guidelines uh, will be updated. Outstanding. Well, David, I wanted to also start, um, let's start with early stage disease. And um, one of the things that I noticed was that for stage 1A2 um, microscopic disease, uh, colonization alone and simple hysterectomy is considered acceptable now. And certainly I totally agree with this recommendation. This has been somewhat different than what many would uh, still consider uh, the standard practice, if, if you would call it that. Uh, that for a 1A2 patients need a radical hysterectomy. I think there's obviously increasing evidence that that might not be the case. But um, I wanted to ask you your comments on this uh, recommendation of just a simple cone or a simple hysterectomy for a 1A2. 
Yeah. Well, interestingly, ESGO performed uh, a survey, international survey, just ahead to each of those guidelines. So in 2017 and then in 2022, and uh, one of the questions was related to the management of, of, of one stage. And you can clearly see the shift in the, in the, in the, in the answers of, uh, of the respondents towards non-radical management of 1A stage. So there is obviously also in the clinical routine uh, this tendency to do uh, less radical procedures, either con or, or uh, simple trachelectomy. What I would highlight here is in spite of you know, uh, conization as, a, as an adequate procedure, because in the majority of cases, the, uh, the, the diagnostic procedure is conization. And uh, in 1A1, 1A2 stages, most of them will have clear margins. So there is no tumor left in the cervix. But the recommendation says that there is a difference in the, in the recommendation for lymph node staging. Because mm. if you look at retrospective data, which we, which we have, the prognosis of, of both 1A2, 1A1, 1A1, is very good, but the risk of lymph node positivity is different. Mm -hmm. It's about 1% in 1A1, but can be 5 to 7% in 1A2. So, mm -hmm. so even if we have 1A2 uh, lymph vascular uh, uh, space positive with negative margins of, of the cone and negative sentinel lymph node, uh, this is very, this is excellent prognostic. Yeah, and I'm glad you highlight the fact that uh, the lymph node evaluation still remains an important part of this process. Now, David, I, I know that uh, uh, you were probably anticipating this question from me, and, and, and I, re I remember when you were presenting the updated guidelines, when you mentioned the word minimally invasive surgery, I said to those who were around me to please be quiet. I need to listen to what they're going to say about this. So um, I'm going to ask you about the suggestion of minimally invasive being acceptable uh, for tumors less than two centimeters. And uh, given that all of the data on this is retrospective and there's no clearly defined definition of really expert centers in minimally invasive surgery, what led the group to make um, this, this uh, recommendation? And, and also in this setting, uh, is vaginal protective maneuvers uh, mandatory? Yeah. Of course, Pedro. I I wouldn't feel well if you if you would not ask me uh, this uh, this uh, this question. And uh, but believe me that uh, the group spent quite some time discussing, uh, you know, each and every word of this recommendation. the uh, The main recommendation has changed, obviously, because the the previous said that that uh, the minimally invasive is. Uh, the the preferred approach, uh, while now it says that the standard approach is open surgery. And uh, then the guidelines, you are right, opens a possibility to, to do minimally invasive in two situations. One is for lymph node staging. Uh, so this is how our current practice at, at my institution currently looks like that uh, we do lymphadenectomy or sentinel lymph node biopsy by laparoscopy 
uh, and uh, send it for frozen. And if it's negative, then we do usually transverse incision and do radical hysterectomy from open approach. And second situation is in very low risk humans. And then there is you know, a whole paragraph of, of conditions. So, so, so you know, it's, it's really under certain and certain and certain conditions. And one of these, you are right, that there is uh, nothing like a definition of, uh, of a center of excellence for a minimally invasive surgery. But ESGO published quality indicators for mm -hmm. cervical cancer. And the guideline says that this applies to centers which meet the ESGO quality criteria for, for surgery. And it, it really, it's, it says that it's, it's applicable to the best of the best subgroups. So less than two centimeters after mm. consultation with free margins. So, so there are really many, many conditions and it's it, the best of the best group. Great. Now, David, uh, some of these questions that come to us from the current uh, fellows in the journal, and this one comes from Anissa Mburu, she's in uh, Kenya. And she asked, when finding positive lymph nodes, uh, why is it that ovarian transposition cannot be recommended, uh, especially if the patient is a premenopausal woman and will definitely undergo chemoradiotherapy? Yeah, no, this is uh, this is very uh, very interesting topic because. Uh, uh, you know, all data which 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 is available on this topic are obviously retrospective data. Uh, two kinds of either it's a pathological study of the ovaries which were removed, whether there is any metastasis on a surface of the ovary, and obviously the the uh, the the rate of positivity is very very low because if the ovary is macroscopically okay there are no other mats then, then then the risk is very very small and then there is another type of papers uh, which follows patients after ovarian uh, ovarian preservation and uh, uh, analyze uh, the recurrence rate and the recurrence rate on the on the ovaries uh, but you know, we, you feel that both of them are are biased and uh, and 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 don't tell us exactly uh, the risk. And all of the data which we have available are from early stage disease. And here we talk about stage three. Uh, we, we 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 talk about patients with positive lymph nodes. So, mm -hmm. so, so in the recommendations, they usually say, you know, it's not recommended in a, in atypical uh, or non-HPV associated adenocarcinomas in larger tumors. So on one, uh, one side, we said, no, it's not recommended in large tumors, but it's, it can be preserved in uh, patients with positive lymph nodes mm. where it's much higher risk. So, so I think you know we just put it online with uh, in line with uh, with the current uh, with the current literature and simply reflect the situation where uh, we are high risk population, and in this high risk population, it's difficult to uh, to recommend ovarian preservation based on currently available data. Of course, if there is an agreement between the patient and a surgeon on this 
on the situation, you know, that's that, that's that's a, a, a different point. But as an international group, we 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 cannot recommend. Very well. And I know that on this next question, uh, I think you can you can spend an entire podcast. Uh, she uh, asked this question also from Anissa. She uh, asked, would you recommend a reconsideration of the application of the set list criteria? But she's, of course, obviously particularly interested. HIV is a major issue in Africa. And she says with HIV infected individuals who have a higher risk of disease progression, and perhaps she's she's taken this opportunity having the your expertise i know that likely this was not discussed extensively in the consensus guidelines yeah so two options either i can talk about set list criteria intermediate risk and adjuvant treatment it will take 60 minutes <laughs> or uh, say something about about uh, hiv positive population so i would rather you know uh, take the second option and here, uh, it's a very good question, actually. And I think this is one of the weaknesses in uh, of our guidelines, that in the whole guidelines, we did not mention a word about HIV-positive population. And I realized that only uh, only when I when I read some article recently about about HIV HIV population and and I know that you know it's it's a big discrepancy uh, and uh, this is this is something as a as a depth of the of of the guidelines. Me personally, I can hardly say anything reasonable uh, about this this topic because uh, we have very few patients. And I don't have any personal uh, personal ex experience. I I don't know whether whether pelvic radiotherapy can uh, improve the the prognosis, but definitely it's a risk factor, and it's an additional risk risk factor. So yes, probably if I am in the region with a very high HIV positive. Uh, rates in the in the population having of uh, uh, intermediate risk cancer and accessible you know access to radio radiotherapy i would consider differently yeah and i think it also opens an opportunity for having that as an item for discussion in the next consensus uh, uh meeting as well um, now, David, this next question comes from uh, Teresa Pan in uh, in Austria, and she wants to know, from your perspective and the committee's perspective, what's the ideal imaging study for early stage disease versus locally advanced disease in cervical cancer? Well, this is very interesting, and and uh, I I must say it's it's also something for for at least uh, twenty minutes. <laughs> because it's it's not that simple, and it's something uh, where our side and uh, and our group uh, uh, has been working. Uh, so, in terms of of early stage disease, uh, our Centix trial, which was international study on sentinel lymph node in cervical cancer, brought, I believe, very interesting data in this field because one of the imaging was mandatory in preoperative staging, MRI or expert ultrasound. And it was on a discretion of the site 
to choose one of them. So I think you know it's much better than to force all the sides to use both, because usually the side is experienced either with one mm -hmm. or with the second. And it was just accidentally that it was almost half to half uh, the sites and the number of patients in whom either MRI or expert ultrasound. So it was a fantastic opportunity to compare uh, the accuracy of these two techniques. And uh, this data only will be published, so, so it hasn't been published yet, but it clearly shows that in all three parameters which we need from, uh, from the imaging, I mean, tumor size measurement, uh, parametria involvement, and potentially lymph node involvement, both imaging techniques are the same. Mm. The same accuracy. And ultrasound is, you know, and, and it's not only our side with Daniela Fischerova, but, but really 50% of this of the signs. So, so I believe, you know, this is very reassuring for, for, for many signs that they don't have uh, to send patients for MRI. But if they have experienced uh, sonographer, they can really offer a very accurate preoperative staging and select the patients for the right procedure and for the right treatment modality. And in terms of the second part, uh, locally advanced disease, meaning uh, retroperitoneal staging mostly, uh, we are currently in the middle of the prospective study, international multicenter study. So, so few sites from Italy and Spain joined us in this, in this effort, uh, comparing uh, MRI, PET scan, and uh, expert ultrasound in preoperative staging. There are many you know, difficulties and uh, many, many problematic items like, like that we need histologic confirmation of, uh, of, this, of this finding. But, but so, so only those who are scheduled for surgery are, are included. And as said, we are in the middle of a, of a prospective study. Great. Um, now, David, this uh, question also from Anissa. Um, and I noticed that the NCCN guidelines recently modified the recommendation for these patients. The patients who have the inadvertent simple hysterectomy or what we used to call in the past the cut through hysterectomy done for invasive uh, cervical cancer. Is there a role in your mind for radical parametrectomy and upper vaginectomy anymore in this patients? Uh, and also she follows it up with, is there a role for sentinel lymph node mapping after the uterus basically has been removed? Typically, these are patients you see after they already had the simple hysterectomy. Yeah. So, so to save to save time, I I'd like to be in a structured here. So first, uh, we can hardly uh, do uh, sentinel lymph node because uh, you know there is no the central organ to to inject uh, to inject the. The tracer. So this is one of the arguments against it, because uh, we we lose this very important uh, benefit from uh, from uh, from surgery. Uh, second, uh, there is definitely shift uh, in our recommendations. So in the in in the new guidelines, we still leave a possibility 
but uh, it's it's rather the window is very tiny time small and uh, my personal opinion although i've done quite a few of of those of those procedures is that actually uh, there is a very little space for 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 radical parametrectomy for many reasons because of higher morbidity uh, not possible to do sentinel lymph nodes, so not possible to, the, to, to do intraoperative, so not possibility to exclude the necessity of adjuvant uh, radiotherapy after the, after the, the treatment. And, and in very small tumors, uh, we see the, the tendency, which is uh, towards you know, de-escalation of mm -hmm. surgical treatment so probably soon after the shape trial uh, we will have evidence that even in tumors which are one or 15 millimeters in size does not need uh, radical parametrectomy so uh, that's why the space for radical parametrectomy is is very is, is very small great uh, this next question comes from andrea rosati who's at gemelli hospital in rome um, he's concerned about the larger tumors. Uh, he says guidelines consider radical surgery even in tumors greater than four centimeters, namely stages 1B3 and 2A2. Can you provide an objective guidance in order to decide between upfront surgery versus definitive radiotherapy? In other words, what tools can we use to determine who's the ideal candidate for surgery versus radiation? Yeah. You know, very difficult question. We don't have any tools to guide us. Uh, uh, well, reflecting current clinical practice, uh, I think that it's rather uh, the tradition or or experience uh, at individual sides. What is important is, you know, let me say from from another angle. Uh, we recently published data from uh, for one of the largest retrospective cohorts in early stage cervical cancer, the SCAN trial, and we developed uh, the, uh, the 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 mathematical model for the risk of recurrence. It's now newly available at the ESCO ESCO website, and uh, so we could play a little bit with the risk factors. And if you take the uh, LVSI negative, lymph node negative, squamous cell cancer, and then you just play with the size of the tumor, you know, less than two, between two and four, higher than four, the difference in the risk of recurrence is very small, actually. Hmm. So the size itself is not, you know, that large uh, or, or that strong. Uh, prognostic factor, but with the size goes head to head uh, risk of lymph node involvement. So uh, my advice would be always if uh, sites and people consider surgical treatment to do very good imaging uh, before the surgery to exclude those with obvious lymph node positivity and then to do intraoperative assessment. Uh, so, so to do Sentinel, send it for a frozen and be ready to abandon radical and send patients for, for primary chemoradiation in case of 
of positivity. Yes, I know it's not 100% accurate, so you will not avoid completely a necessity of adjuvant treatment, but it helps a lot. And it, it, it diminishes the size of this, of this cohort, which will require a combined, a combined treatment. So this is our policy, how, how we do it. We try to drive the patients either towards radical, good radical, and only radical surgery, or primary chemo radiation. Very well. Um, this next question also on your point of, uh, so it's a good segue, it's uh, regarding the sentinel lymph node mapping and what to do. Giulio Bonaldo from Italy also, he asked that these guidelines recommend that for stage 1B1, 1B2, 2A1, lymph node assessment should be performed uh, following the standard sentinel lymph node algorithm, but that these should be sent for frozen section intraoperatively. If the sentinel lymph nodes are negative at frozen section, there's a recommendation for systematic pelvic lymphadenectomy. So his question is primarily uh, two. One is why accepting frozen section for evaluation of sentinel lymph nodes? As many countries, as you know, uh, even the pathologists refuse to do that. Um, and second, if the sentinel lymph node is negative and provided that, that you're relying on that frozen section, then why the recommendation to perform a full lymphadenectomy? Yeah, so there are multiple questions in this. So first, uh, you know, uh, frozen section. Uh, some pathologists claim that uh, you doing frozen section, you lose the tissue. Uh, so you, you cannot then uh, accurately do ultra-staging of the sentinel lymph node. Uh, I consider uh, this claim as uh, uh, no false claim because uh, the, the amount of tissue which is spoiled by frozen section is very tiny, small. And if you look at the literature and uh, we published the really very, very meticulous survey of the literature two years ago, uh, you see that uh, only in uh, about, I don't know by, by heart, but 10% of, of all papers uh, in methodology, they really say they, in, uh, during, during auto-staging, they, uh, they completely assess the, all the slides. So what, what happens actually that they leave some tissue always untouched, left, because if you want to do it completely, we don't speak about tens or hundreds, but about thousands of slides. So, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge amount of work, which in clinical practice is probably not possible to do. So I consider it you know, very good practice to spoil a small amount of tissue for frozen section, and to avoid a combined treatment in uh, some proportion of patients because you know about the positivity in uh, intraoperatively. Of course, it's also about the, 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 the counseling uh, of the patient and you must be ready to quit and yeah. to use this in information to abandon the radical, the radical surgery. I just did one case 
today, of course, you know, it's, it's, it, it's boring because you have to uh, first remove Sentinel, send it for frozen, and then wait. <laughs> and then you wait, and, uh, and then you wait, and after you, you receive the response, you continue doing it. But, but this is how we do it. And, uh, and, uh, and if, the, if, if the result uh, was, was positive, we would quit the further radical procedure. The result was negative. So we did phalangeal incision, performed radical hysterectomy, and complete lymphadenectomy. Just briefly, the second question, why to complete lymphadenectomy? Well, uh, just the group ref reflected uh, the lack of prospective data. Uh, we have a lot of retrospective data saying that there is a very good sensitivity of sentinel lymph node for the whole pelvic uh, region, but no real prospective data. So currently there are three trials ongoing, prospective trials, Centix was observational and two randomized controlled trials, Centix 3 and one Chinese study. And uh, these three trials should bring us good evidence. Great. Um, now, David, a question about locally advanced disease. Um, the guidelines propose that surgical staging may be considered. Now, we know the results of the uterus 11 uh, trial. This is uh, prospective data um, that really showed that there was no difference between imaging and surgery. So why did the committee make a recommendation regarding surgical staging can still be considered? Yeah, well, this is a, a very, difficult, very difficult question. Uh, uterus 11 unfortunately had some weaknesses and one of them which is you know mostly criticized is that they did not use bad scan in the preoperative imaging so you know in these patients bad scan at least in uh, in developed countries is uh, is a standard so 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 without a bad scan to say that that you know it, it can or, or or cannot help it's uh, it's difficult uh, there is uh, um, a new uh, Parola trial, uh, you are probably aware of it uh, uh, as well, which is uh, about to be launched uh, soon, international trial to tackle this question in a, in a right way and to do a prospective randomized trial uh, comparing yes or no uh, lymphadenectomy in PET scan negative uh, patients. Um, and uh, the guidelines just, you know, reflects this uncertainty. Uh, it is or it is not a current clinical practice at different sites. And the guidelines only opens a possibility. It says it may be or it can be uh, considered. So, so we don't know. Very well. Um, this next question, Julia Bonaldo, is more about predictive factors or predictive information regarding patients with early stage. Um, and he comments on the fact that many times preoperatively, you don't know if there is lymphovascular space invasion, what is the maximal stromal invasion. Um, so therefore, how should surgeons plan as to what type of radical hysterectomy to, to perform? And he even goes to ask, well, do you recommend doing a conization in every patient that has early stage disease? Yeah. 
So, so my first answer would be that the message to do colonization in all early stage disease would be very, very wrong. Uh, you know, we should really recognize that the diagnostic technique for, for very small disease is indeed a colonization because each and every millimeter of the disease can play a role. While if there is a tumor, which is two, three, four centimeters, it's really a wrong approach to do a colonization, which can only bring complications and bleeding and maybe also, you know, increase the risk of, of, of the tumor cell, uh, cell split in the, in the vagina. So definitely if it's a macroscopic tumor, the biopsy is a, is, is a diagnostic technique. The data which we have that patients after colonization have a better prognosis, well, for obvious reasons, because we already removed the whole, the whole tumor. They were free margins, so there is no tumor left. So very highly probably, you know, whatever we do in terms of the uterus removing, it doesn't matter whether we do simple or trachelectomy or radical stage uh, type A, B, or, or whatever. Concerning the type, uh, uh, second, I, uh, you know, I think that we can have, based on uh, preoperative Im imaging, quite a good idea about the prognostic group of the, of the tumor. It's, it's right that based on biopsy, we cannot have information about lymphovascular space invasion, but using either MRI or expert ultrasound, uh, not physical examination anymore, but MRI or ultrasound, we really have a very good information about the size of the disease, but the same is with, with depth of stromal in, invasion. It's just a different angle of the same information. It's size of the tumor versus size of the cervix. So these two factors uh, we know quite, quite accurately before the surgery, and we can plan our type of surgery. Having said that, and I believe that this is, well, this is my subjective uh, point of view, uh, not about the guidelines. But, uh, but uh, you know, after the SHAPE trial uh, was published, uh, uh, and uh, it's very likely that the SHAPE trial will be positive or negative, meaning that it will prove that that simple hist is sufficient procedure for, for tumors less than two centimeters. Uh, we will sooner or later realize that, you know, there is very little space for type B radical hysterectomy because we will no more do radicals for small small tumors. So uh, we will be deciding between doing simple in uh, small tumors or in large tumors, either go for primary chemo radiation mm -hmm. or to do really proper type C radical hysterectomy with the aim to remove the parametria and to remove the lymphatic tissue, uh, which is in the parameter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, uh, David, this, this question is a, a, perhaps a bit of a controversial subject, definitely here in the United States. This is uh, an issue. Uh, this question comes from Brian Kahn, who's at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York. Um, 
he writes, in Europe, has there been any difficulty for patients who have elected for first or second trimester terminations to obtain the procedures uh, necessary in the management of patients with cervical cancer during pregnancy? Well, very, very difficult question. Uh, actually, I don't know the answer because Europe is a very heterogeneous uh, uh, continent. As you know, it's more than 50 countries and uh, 50 different legal systems. So actually, I don't know. Uh, I know that in our region, in, in our country, and uh, uh, well, I cannot say even, even our, because but I'm not sure how it is in Poland, for instance, but in our country, yes, the, the, there is an access. There is an access for, for, for pregnancy termination if there is a threat uh, for either mother or the fetus. Uh, in the second and in the third pregnancy, but I cannot say if this is universal in Europe. Yeah. Uh, David, this next question, and again, congratulations to you and the team for addressing the importance of a very good pathology re uh, report. Um, and you provide great and detailed recommendations regarding an expert pathologist and also what should be included in the report. Um, how are you defining an expert pathologist and how do we make sure that pathologists come together to provide consistent reports? Yeah. Well, I'm not aware of any uh, definition which would be internationally recognized for expert pathologist. Uh, it's not included in our, in our guidelines. I can tell you that there was a lot of controversy, even you know, among the pathologists <laughs> included in our international international group. Uh, I'm very glad that they found finally a consensus on the most difficult questions like the role of uh, micromats or the standard for 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 ultra staging of sentinel lymph nodes because those are pending issues which are important for our for our routine practice and uh, i can only tell you that we also have some some uh, experience uh, from the centix trial because uh, one of the strong points were, was that that central reading of of the samples from sentinel lymph nodes were was involved and and we received samples from uh, from, from from all sides and uh, we did it in two rounds and fortunately the first round we did at the, at the very beginning of the trial and we were very badly surprised by the quality of pathology. And I can tell you that also the quality of pathology did not correspond to the, uh, I would say, size of the of the of the sites or or the or the recognition of the sites. So <laughs> so uh, you know sometimes even we as uh, surgeons or clinicians don't know exactly uh, what they do <laughs> next door. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should be aware of it because mm -hmm. uh, we, 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 we shouldn't be satisfied with just reading that we did ultra staging and we found that. We, we should really pay some attention and, uh, and pay some time and, and, and go into it and, and, and ask them what's the standard. And uh, uh, 
uh, well, we saw it. We would be surprised sometimes that the quality uh, simply uh, does not meet uh, the requirements or, or the standards. And we know that especially, you know, cervical cancer is, is a very unique cancer because almost always the first spread is via lymphatic tissue. It's via lymph nodes. Uh, we, we hardly saw any patient with, you know, metastasis in the lungs or, 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 or elsewhere and negative lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. It does not exist. Yeah. And this, this is why the lymph node staging is, is so, is so important information for the, for the management, for the follow-up and, and for, you know, uh, all, 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 all further steps after, after the, the surgery. And uh, we learned within the last uh, years that sentinel lymph node biopsy, probably its biggest uh, advantage is not the decrease of the rate of, of, of uh, lower leg lymphedema, but it's an opportunity to do ultra-staging mm -hmm. and to detect maybe 50% of additional patients who are high-risk patients because of small metastasis in sentinel lymph nodes. And we should not miss this opportunity in the management of cervical cancer patients. Yes, no, absolutely. And I, and I do recommend our, our listeners to uh, not only look at the details of those uh, pathology reports, but also potentially share them with your uh, local pathologist as well. So David, I want to be respectful of your time. I have two more questions. Um, before we come to the conclusion of the, of the podcast. And uh, one of them is on the recurrent disease setting. Um, I saw that there was a recommendation about the Lear procedure or the laterally extended uh, resections or, and out-of-the-box procedures. Um, why uh, did the consensus come to a recommendation when some might say there is really very little evidence for long-term outcomes on a broad basis for, for this type of procedure? Yeah, I fully agree. I fully agree. And, uh, and uh, well, also based on my own clinical, clinical practice, uh, those are really highly selected patients. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, in a, I think that, that at least in, in the region or in the country, there should be one side one institution centralizing these patients with ability to offer them such an approach. So it's a pity if uh, you have a patient who is young, uh, who has a local recurrence, uh, which is attached to the pelvic sidewall, uh, who already already uh, was treated by 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 uh, primary primary radiotherapy so you don't have this option to to offer and the only option the only opportunity with a curative uh, possibility is the surgery but as we know the the most important prognostic factor is to reach free margins without such an opportunity uh, such a procedure should not be performed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so there must be a surgeon in the region who knows who is master in 
in, in these procedures and can overcome it. And if it's necessary then to resect the nerve uh, or uh, large vessels, or even you know, to, to go to the, to the, to the pelvic, pelvic bone and simply offer uh, to these patients uh, such, an, such an opportunity. So again, it's not a general recommendations. These, group, these patients will be always you know, highly selected, very rare, very few. Uh, we cannot do any, you know, any prospective study mm -hmm. uh, to prove it. There always will be retrospective, retrospective data. Uh, on our own ex experience, it seems that the Lear offers similar, uh, similar outcome as uh, standard, standard exenteration. Uh, so about forty to fifty percent chance. Great. Now, David, uh, one last question, and uh, and I know certainly this is not directly uh, associated with uh, with the publication of these guidelines, but this question comes from uh, one of our current fellows, Jennifer Davis Oliveira in the UK, and her question is: Is the elimination of cervical cancer ambition by the WHO achievable? And what are the reasons for your answer? And what needs to happen to achieve this goal? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, yeah, this is probably uh, not not a question for for me, but uh, well, I can give you my my personal opinion. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, although it looks very nice, it's 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 a very good goal, uh, and it sounds uh, uh, very good, you know, eradicate um, the the journey is going to be very, very difficult. And uh, there are so many obstacles. And although, you know, it seems to be quite obvious that a combination of vaccination and effective HPV-based screening, you know, may, if not eradicate, then, then really make it rare, rare tumor. And, and, and we can see that in some countries that they they already achieved this uh, this goal, so obviously it's possible. But uh, you know, I see it uh, as an example in my country. We we have resources, we we have the quality, we have the network of of labs and and, and gynecologists and and, and oncogyne centers, and still you know there is so much you know always will be something. So there is one barrier is is opposition against vaccination. That's one part of the population. Then it's it's a lab lobby because uh, our screening has always been based on, on, on cytology. So the journey towards HPV screening is uh, very difficult. So, so, you know, in each country, there will be something, but it's not only about, about money, uh, about, you know, the vaccines and deliver the, the the vaccine, but but it must be based on a system, uh, and uh, also uh, the whole population uh, must be must be ready to accept this and uh, and to take care of it, to be involved. Uh, so you know, I only wish uh, for better, and especially in uh, in countries where where the incidence is is very high. Actually, I've recently, you know, been writing uh, an introduction to uh, to one of our articles, and 
and and and I summarize the 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 inventions in cervical cancer is is immunotherapy, uh, robotic surgery, ICG in Sentinel lymph node uh, diag diagnostic, uh, PET scan in uh, as a functional PET scan as a as a prognostic marker. None of those inventions are available in these in these countries with the highest incidence. So uh, you know uh, it's uh, it's really a long a long way in ahead of us. Uh, uh, my view is pessimistic, but we always uh, hope for better. Well, David, thank you so so much, David Sivulev. Uh, outstanding job from you and the and the uh, committee for putting together these guidelines. Congratulations to all. I'm sure there was, was a tremendous amount of work. Uh, and again, congratulations to you and thank you for all that you contribute to gynecologic oncology. Pedro, I thank you for the, for the invitation. It's really on behalf of the whole international group because I'm just one of the authors. And uh, contrary, I'd like to congratulate you and uh, really, you know, uh, say to the to the whole editorial boards and and the whole group of people uh, what you did with uh, with the journal and what you what you achieved because it's so much appreciated in our field of gynae oncology. Thank you.